take your Bibles tonight to 1 Peter chapter number 2. 1 Peter chapter number 2. We'll start reading in verse number 19. I don't know about you, but I want to see the Lord do more this year than He was able to do last year through this church. Uh, Generally, it is not God that is limited in His resource or His ability. Generally, it is us that limits God. And sometimes we find ourselves valuing our own priorities and our own uh, ideas and uh, pursuits a little bit more valuable than those we deem that God is seeking out. But if we are truly to see what we all think we want to see, where everyone in Johnson County hears a clear presentation of the gospel, where bus kids look forward to coming to see other kids getting saved. If we are to see what we want our church to become, we must get to the point where we set aside ourself and begin to value, more importantly, what God has for us than what we have for us. Uh, It goes much deeper than money, and uh, that was spoken about this morning. It goes much deeper than even time, and that was spoken about this morning. It goes to the very heart of you just deciding to say, God, whatever it is you want me to give up, God, whatever it is that is the one stumbling block that I'm not willing to forego, God, whatever it is, I'm willing to give that up so that others may know your precious Son. And when we get to that point, we'll walk in the steps of Jesus. Tonight I want to speak to you about our theme verse. And uh, I I set out to study and to teach you how Jesus was an example in the faith, how he was an example in obedience, how he was an example in prayer and all these other things. However, that's simply not what the passage teaches. I want to start reading in verse number 19. And I don't ever want to take passages out of their context, because when you do that, you begin to teach something that could just as easily be labeled a false doctrine. So tonight, we're going to look at what this passage is, and how it applies to us, and how Christ, being our example, applies. Verse number 19 of 1 Peter chapter number 2, the Bible says, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, Suffering wrongly, wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. I want to read verse 21 one more time, and I want to call your attention to what the Bible is saying Christ is our example in. Unfortunately, uh, Christ is not in this passage our example in the faith. 
He's not our example in obedience, although he is a tremendous example in those areas. In fact, he even taught us to pray. But in this particular passage, he is not our example in prayer. Notice with me. See if you can come up with what he is our example in. Verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Now, I do not want you to take this the wrong way, but if at the end of this sermon you still think that it's roses to be a follower of Christ's example, I have failed miserably. Unfortunately, the age that we live in wants to paint this idea that following Christ is an easy path. It wants to paint to you the idea that generally when you follow Christ and you live the life that you're to live and you're a good steward, you'll be blessed and you'll have everything go your way and you'll always get the promotion and you'll always get the blessing and you will always get exactly what you need because God can supply all your needs and you'll have that every time. But when Christ came to this earth, he was our example in suffering. That's very clearly what the verse says. Christ suffered for us, and he was our example that we should follow in his steps. See, the problem with modern-day Christianity is we don't want to talk about the suffering aspect. We don't want to consider that there may be some level of uh, endurance that has to take place, some level of, of pain or some level of torment. We just want to put that all behind us like Christ didn't have to suffer. But truly, Christ is our example in the way that he suffered. It has been said that there is no great victory that does not require sacrifice. A faith that costs you nothing is worth nothing. And unfortunately, we live in such a plush time now where everything is easy going. And when we hit the slightest little bump, we throw our hands up in the air and say, Well, I didn't know Christianity was going to be this difficult. Friend, what did serving God cost you this last year? Did it cost you a relationship? Did it cost you uh, uh, freedom to do what you want? Did it cost you maybe a little bit more money than you thought it was going to cost? Did it cost you time that you had not planned on giving? If so, I can say that you are following in the steps of Jesus, giving what was given to you, being spent for the Lord Jesus Christ. But a lot of us probably, it didn't cost all that much. We we became comfortable and we coasted. Tonight I want to talk to you about the suffering steps of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do a work in this hour. Uh, Lord, I am truly following your hand tonight. I am openly uh, seeking your will in this sermon. And, Lord, I've studied, I've prepared, I've got a lot of stuff on paper, but ultimately, Lord, if this is not what you want me to preach or not what you want me to say, Lord, that is totally up to you. Lord, I pray tonight that you would direct my thoughts in such a way that this sermon would totally bring glory to your Son. 
and it would totally shed light on a, a, a topic that I, I frankly don't think gets talked about enough. So, Lord, please, tonight, uh, help the, the hearers in this room not to just close their hearts because the subject matter is difficult to swallow. But, Father, I pray tonight that they would be willing to hear your word if it truly is your word that's being preached. I pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. I want to talk to you tonight, as I said, on the suffering steps of our Savior. How did Christ suffer when he came to this earth? Well, he he suffered in a multitude of ways, actually. Uh, He suffered because of a crooked government. If you'll recall, at the birth of Jesus Christ, what was the very first thing that he encountered? Uh, He was born, and and there was a stable, and there was a manger, and and there were people worshiping him and adoring him and giving uh, him praise. But it was not just two years after that that a man by the name of Herod heard that Jesus was to be born. How did he receive this message? Well, uh, three wise men showed up, magi from the east, and they said, We have come following a star to worship the new king. Well, Herod obviously didn't like these words, and he didn't want to be stepped down another rung in the ladder. So what he did was he said, well, if you go find Jesus, you bring me word again, and I will come to worship him. And we've already looked at this Christmas season. Herod had no desire to worship Jesus. So the Magi go, they give Jesus their uh, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they Sorry about that uh, uh, sign language uh, uh, interpreter down there. What is frankincense in uh, sign language? Oh, yeah, I spell it out. Good, good, good. Sorry, I'm trying to help her out tonight. But they give Jesus the gifts that were brought, they had brought for him, and they were led of God to not return to Herod and say, Look, we found him. Well, that angers Herod, does it not? And what he does is he decides to kill every young boy under the age of two in that area. He's angered. He's he's part of a crooked government who's trying to make sure that their throne is established as long as it can be. They don't want religious liberty. They don't want religious freedom. They don't want anything that Jesus has to offer. He wants him gone. And Jesus dealt with a crooked government the entire ministry that he had here on the earth. In fact, if you'll recall, it was the shuffle between one judge to another judge and those judges playing uh, politics that eventually led to the innocent execution or the execution of an innocent man. Uh, the people began to press Pilate and they said, "We want him dead, Pilate, crucify him, crucify him." And I read the Bible And I've read it several times in this passage of Scripture, and I feel that Pilate did everything short of just saying no. He tried his dead-level best to make sure that Jesus would get out. He said, well, uh, now's the time when I'm to deliver one unto you. Who do you want, this, this murdering thief, or do you want Jesus? Give us Barabbas. And finally, Pilate stood up and pled with him and said, I find no fault in this man. I would love to tell you he's done something wrong, but he just simply has not. And all those people shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And it was a crooked government that eventually uh, gave Jesus over to be crucified. Jesus suffered at the feet of a crooked government. He suffered at the failures of religious leaders. 
If anybody should have been willing to hear Jesus' new uh, truth, if if anybody ought to have been able to listen to the sermons of Jesus and to see the miracles of Jesus, you know who it ought to have been? It ought to have been the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Man, these guys put us to shame with their zeal. They were more holy. They were more pious. They did not have trouble keeping rules. That's what they were good at. And yet, it was these same people that throughout the entire ministry of Jesus tried to defame Him and deter Him the entire time. If you'll recall, they often tried tripping Jesus up in His words, and they would try getting Him to uh, go against what Scripture would say. They oftentimes even pointed to Him and said, Uh, You're healing someone on the Sabbath day. It is not lawful to heal someone on the Sabbath day. They would try catching him, breaking the law. Finally, it got to the point where they could no longer deny Jesus' miracle-working power. Many times they tried explaining it away. Many times they tried doing their very best to just shut up all of the uh, uproar that was taking place because of the miracles. And they finally just said this. Jesus is doing these miracles in the power of Satan. Casting him up, setting him up and saying, he is of Beelzebub. If anybody should have been willing to accept that Jesus was who he said he was, it ought to have been the men who knew the word of God more than anybody. And yet it was the failures of these religious leaders that motivated the crowds to to cry, crucify him. It was the failures of these men and their, their attempt to see Jesus removed from the picture. They didn't want grace. They didn't want the change that Jesus had to offer. They weren't looking for a, a religious Messiah. They were looking for a political Messiah. And they said, uh, it was them that delivered Jesus up. It was not only at the feet of a crooked government and at the failures of religious leaders, it was at the fury of people's rejection. One of the saddest moments in all the Bible is when, on what we refer to as Palm Sunday, when throngs of people have gathered around and they've seen the miracles that Jesus has performed, and many of them, no doubt, had felt His touch in their life. And they line the streets... And they get whatever they can to cast down before Jesus, showing reverence and showing adoration and showing worship. And at the very top of their lungs, with with all the might that they could muster, they said, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, worshiping Jesus. And it is not a week later that the same people who just proclaimed him as sent from God are calling for his execution on the cross. I would love to tell you that when Jesus came, he had an easy life. I would love to tell you that when he came, he got what he deserved and and everybody worshipped him and everybody adored him and 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 everybody just looked to Jesus for answers, but unfortunately that was not the pattern that was laid down in Scripture. The Bible tells us that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Uh, The men that were closest to Jesus were oftentimes the men that hurt Jesus the worst. Uh, 
Remember Peter? Remember Judas? All of these men should have had Jesus' back, but where were they all? At the foot of the cross. Jesus didn't have an easy life. Can I ask you a question? If we call him Lord, and if he is our Lord, why would we expect our life to be any better? The Bible says, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The Bible says, if if they hated me, if they hate you, know also that they hated me. The the servant is not greater than the master. Uh, Realize, they didn't like the message when I was preaching it, and it's not going to sound any better when it's coming out of your mouth. What did it cost you to serve Jesus? I would say in the case of most of us, it wasn't as much as it needed to be. Look, I want to cast a vision. I want to tell you that I want this building packed. I want I want uh, uh, chairs lining the aisle. You know how bad uh, folding chairs looked right next to pews? That's exactly what I want. I want ushers to have to tell people that the bottom uh, section of our church is closed down and that they're going to have to go to the top. I want people so filling this building that when the fire chief comes, he just gets saved because he's not near going to say that we don't have enough escape routes. Look, that's what I want for this church. But great victory is always accompanied by great sacrifice. The reason there are so many vacant seats tonight is because we're not suffering. We're not laboring. We're not striving. We're not working. We're not not hurting. It is not our goal. It is not our uh, utmost priority. We sit complacent because complacent is enough. And unfortunately, it's not enough for Christ. I want to share with you just three simple things this evening. I want to share with you how Christ suffered. First of all, Christ suffered and his loss helps us learn about the Savior. Suffering loss with Christ helps us learn about the Savior. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, we learn about the type of servant that Jesus was. You see, when Jesus came to this earth, you know what he deserved? He deserved pomp and circumstance. He deserved the best. He didn't deserve a manger. He deserved a throne as a crib. If Jesus had come to this earth as king of all the earth, he would have still been the most humble man to ever live. He deserved adulation. He deserved our praise. He deserved the best of the best. Yet what did he get? Uh, He got the worst. Uh, Sometimes it's amazing. You'll go down to hospitals and and you'll see these buildings and uh, uh, the rooms will be kind of nice and they'll have the the beds there and and, uh, uh, they have all the, uh, 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 starts with an S, all the stuff is, uh, what is it? Sanitizer, yeah, yeah. They sanitize everything. They've got all those foam sanitizer things there. I mean, they've got it all cleaned up, man. And, and did you know that there are some people that say, I don't want to have my baby in a hospital where probably somebody died in the gown that I just wore? There are some people that say that. But you see, we have it nice, man. Our beds, they recline. 
Yeah, I was in a hospital the other day. The bed just started airing up. The guy wasn't even doing anything. He just started airing up for him. Man, we've got flat screen TVs in our hospitals now. We've got uh, cribs. We've got nurses that are designated to just come in and give your baby a bath professionally. We have got the best. They keep coming in. They say, do you want some ice? Do you want some water? Do you want some drink? Do you want some Jello? They, they've got the best of the best. They bring you three meals a day. Hey, this was not what Jesus received when he came to this earth. Jesus was born and placed into the eating trough of animals. He got the worst. The Bible says, even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to be a minister and to give his life a ransom for many. If you learn nothing from the life of Jesus, you ought to learn that you are never too good to be humble. You are never too high to be servant. And if Jesus could come and he could uh, put himself uh, in submission to many and, and to humble himself and take on the form of man and, 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 and endure the pain of the cross, if he was able to come to this earth and be servant of all, I think I can be the servant of everyone. We ought to be servants. And when we look at the suffering of Christ, it helps us see how he was a servant. I'm reminded when Jesus was at supper one evening in the, the agonizing reality that he would eventually die on the cross is becoming more real and more vivid for him every day. And I don't know if when you read the Gospels you get that idea, but throughout the first bit of his ministry, it almost seems as if he was okay not talking about it, it was okay not thinking about it too much. But in the final days before his crucifixion, it became ever-present on his mind. And it was what he instructed his disciples with, and it was what he taught them with. And many times his disciples just could not even understand. There was one occasion where they're at supper, and the Bible says when Jesus realized that he would eventually have to go to the cross, you know what he did? He stood up from the table and he girded an apron around himself, and he got a bowl of water, and he got a washcloth, and he went over to Peter and he knelt. He knelt at the feet of Peter. And he put that washcloth in that, in that uh, uh, water there and he began to wash Peter's feet. And Peter kind of in shock said, Jesus, you're washing my feet? If anybody ought to be washing anybody's feet, it ought to be me washing your feet. I am not worthy. I, I want no part of this. And Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm trying to teach you right now, Peter. But when I'm gone, you'll understand very clear what's going on. God is not looking for a bunch of sergeants. He's looking for a whole bunch of servants. People who will just find God's will and begin to do it with a humble and gracious attitude, not thinking that you're too good to, be, uh, uh, to clean a toilet or not thinking that you're too good to drive a bus or, or to ride a bus or that you're too good to just pick up a piece of paper when you pass it in a hallway. We need a bunch of servants around this church that when people come in, we'll just shake others' hands and say, boy, it's sure good to have you today. And we won't talk about the, the body odor that they smell like. We won't talk about the tattoos that they have or 
or the facial hair that's not been groomed in years. We just need a bunch of servants who will love people and look past faults and look past failures and just say, Jesus, I want to serve you because you were servant of all. When we look at our suffering Savior, we find that he was the servant. We also see in our Savior the forgiveness by which he displayed to others. One of the most amazing things about what Christ did was he never held failures over people's heads. Have you ever known somebody that could constantly remind you about when you do wrong or when you mess up? They're called wives, actually. Um, I'm just kidding. My wife doesn't do that. But boy, I've known people that they were readily available to call up when you messed up in the past. That wasn't the type of Savior that we have. Jesus knew that he would betray him by the person who would betray him, and yet he never called him on the carpet, never embarrassed him, never showed him forth. You know why? Because he could forgive. It was when he was hanging on the cross and everybody that had cried for his crucifixion, uh, they're saying, crucify him. You said you're king of the Jews. Oh, you think you have power? Why don't you just bring yourself down out of the cross? As people stood at the base of his uh, cross, gambling for his vesture, no doubt with Jesus in agonizing torment, not a care in the world on these people's face, showing no concern for what Jesus was going through, Jesus looks at them and then looks at the Father in heaven and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You say, Brother Andrew, Jesus doesn't expect that of me. There's no way he could expect me to be that forgiving. Well, he taught Peter a pretty valuable lesson when when Peter began to ask, how many times should I forgive Give someone who trespasses against me. And Peter thought he was being pretty high and holy, right? He says, God, I think because of the impact you've had on my life, God, I think I can forgive someone about seven times. Lord, And I mean, don't you think that that sounds reasonable? And Jesus says, seven times. Peter, I I think 70 times seven sounds a whole lot better. He said, there's no way Jesus could expect that of me. I'm reminded of when Stephen was being stoned. I wonder where he learned those words, lay not this sin to their charge. It was because there was a man who was identifying with a suffering Savior. He was just a servant. He was just there preaching. Men were wrongly accusing uh, uh, Stephen, uh, 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 giving up a false report, very similar to how they did Jesus. And Stephen just preaches the gospel to them. And wrongfully, they kill Stephen that day. And, And as they throw the stones at him, he looks up full of the Holy Ghost and says, Jesus, lay not this sin to their charge. I don't know if you'll ever be stoned. I doubt it. I was by my sister. She threw a rock straight, straight up in the air and hit me right on top of the head, and I went and got stitches. Chances are you may never encounter that. If you hang around Mandy, I don't know if you do will or not, but 
Truth is, Jesus does expect you to be forgiving. He expects you to be a servant. He expects you to be forgiving. I don't know about you, but I want to be like Jesus in my life. I want others to see me and see an example of Jesus Christ on this earth. And I promise you this, there are no two better ways to do it than to be a servant and to be forgiving. For some reason, we think that we're the only person who never trespasses against anybody. And we always think that we're always the one that's right. And there's no way that we're wrong. And then when somebody offends us, it's as if uh, uh, they just crossed a line that they should never have crossed. I think if this church is truly going to get on the same page and truly going to accomplish something for the Lord, we ought to be a forgiving church. Did you know at the very moment when progress does begin to occur in our church, when, when we start seeing hundreds of people saved uh, uh, and visitors just pour in our doors and we have to buy new buses and this time we'll get them a little less prison looking, but... Uh, 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 we're going to have to buy more buses to fit the kids in because the kids are going to want to come. You know, when that all happens, you know what some Christian down the road is going to say? Oh, they're compromising. There's just no way you could have that many people saved. I bet they're the same bus kids getting saved every week. They're re-saving their bus kids. It's the same ones just making a profession of faith every week. That's what's going to happen. And when it does, you know what we ought to say? Well, I can't believe that they would say that about us. We're just here trying to do something good for God's glory, and old Sister Podup down there is going to tell us what, how to do right? No. We want to be forgiving. Anytime progress has been made for God, it's always been accompanied by criticism. And if we are to share in the suffering of our Savior, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to become servants. We're going to have to learn how to forgive. Secondly, I want to share with you, suffering loss helps us to lean on our Savior. Suffering loss helps us to lean on our Savior. First of all, it helps us to lean on His power. When we are in our time of trouble and our time of peril, that is the time when it's the easiest to turn to God. That's when people come back to church when they've been gone for years. Is when everything in their life seems to be falling apart. And they begin to look for answers, and the only answer that they have is, maybe God will help me. Someone asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? C.S. Lewis responded and said, why not? They're the only ones that can handle it. We ought to turn to God's power. God has everything that we need. You read some of the Psalms and the peril that David was in and the other psalmists were in, the struggle that they were in, and this is what I find unique. In so many Psalms, David feels like his prayers aren't getting higher than the roof. He says, God, why aren't you hearing me? God, why why have you turned your ear from my cry? And he feels all alone and he's absolute destitute. He has no answer, no solution. And yet we read other Psalms where David says, The Lord is my salvation. He is my eye tower. He is my rock. He is my strength. He is my buckler. He is my Savior. We just need to turn to God's power. And in times of suffering, we're able to. I remember... 
the three Hebrew children who in their time of struggle had to trust God with it. They trusted God not only for his power, but for his prerogative. See, that's what we want. We want God's power to deliver us from every situation. Isn't that what we want? We say, God, I know you're able to, so just relieve the burden from me. But oftentimes that's not God's plan. So what do we do when his power has not been revealed? We trust his prerogative. Three of the greatest stories in all of the Bible happened when men had to trust God's prerogative. You see, the only reason that Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego found themselves facing Nebuchadnezzar was because their hometown had been besieged. And they had been taken captive prisoners because God had blessed them so much that they were the most smart, they were the most cunning, they were the most beautiful. So they were stolen away into a foreign land. And it's there that the king instructs his servant how to feed them. He says, "Ah, you're going to give them steak every day. You're going to give them provision. You're going to feed them so that they can learn our ways and our customs and our religion. And that's when Daniel says, we will not... uh, take the king's meat. We've purposed in our heart. And they, they make a deal and they say, I'll tell you what, servant, if you uh, feed us just pulse some water, you just feed us the, the worst type of food you can, and you feed all these other guys the king's meat, if you'll do that, uh, uh, you just see after a little bit of time who it is that's stronger and more healthy at the end of time. Oh, what, the, what were they doing? Oh, they were trusting God's power, but they were also trusting God's prerogative because you know what they could have just as easily said? Well, God obviously doesn't have my best interest at heart or I'd still be back in Jerusalem. I'd still be back with my family and my friends. God obviously doesn't care for me, but they trusted God's prerogative. And in God's prerogative, they found God's power because it was just a few days later when they, when, when they came to check up on all the men that the men that should have been resolute in their faith and said, we, won't, uh, we, we purpose in our heart not to take of the king's meat. When all of those men that should have said that, they enjoyed the bounty of the meat, but they did not enjoy the health. And the feeling of uh, uh, pleasing God like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. It's not just a couple of chapters later where old Daniel finds himself Uh, the, The princes and the governors, they all conspire together, and they know that the one area where Daniel is completely sold out is his faith. So what do they do? Oh, they conspire together, and they get the king to make a decree that if anybody bows down to anybody besides the king... Then uh, if anybody prays to anybody but him, what they would do is they would then have to uh, face the the fiery furnace. No, that's the wrong story. The lion's den, amen? And what happens? They catch Daniel because they knew they could. Daniel uh, had decided long before to pray three times a day, unashamed. And I just think that where Daniel had just opened his windows the day before, Daniel now was standing on the balcony the next day after the law passed. That's what I think. And he's praying to his God. And he's staying faithful. And while he's trusting God's prerogative, he experiences God's power in the lion's den. In the same book, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are commanded to bow down to the image of the king. Commanded. 
And I picture it as if they're in this big, giant plane. And the, the Bible tells them that at what time you hear the harp, the psaltery, the dulcimer, the sack butt. That's my favorite instrument, just so you know. And you gotta, they, they play all these instruments. At what time you hear the music, when you hear the music, you bow down to the image. And I picture throngs of people bowing down. But just maybe in the back, kind of off to the left, there's three shorties standing up. Just, just three little short guys back there. And, and I guess maybe they thought they didn't hear the music, so they play the music. And, no, they're not bowing. They call them up, and the king says, Now, I'm going to give you one more chance. You have to bow down, or you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. I messed up the last time. What do they do? They say, Oh, king, we are not careful to answer the, in the, this matter. Basically, they say, We don't need to huddle up. We don't need to, I don't need to ask uh, him, and he doesn't need to ask me. We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Whether it be right in the sight of you to uh, do what you're asking, we are going to trust God no matter what you request of us or no matter what you command of us. We're not going to bow down to your graven image, and you can heat that furnace up as hot as you want to make it. I promise you it's not going to be hotter than the fiery indignation by which we would face if we didn't do this. So, King, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm just going to trust God's power and his prerogative. And when we endure suffering, it helps us lean on the Savior. Look, as, as Pastor pointed out this morning, times are getting harder. They're making it harder on churches to evangelize. They're making it harder on churches to keep their finances in order. They're making it more difficult. Man, they're wanting to take a tax exemption completely away from the church. Everything in this world is getting more difficult. And you will face more suffering as we continue to get older. But it's in times of suffering when we learn to lean on Jesus Christ. One day a man found an emperor moth cocoon. And he was interested in this thing and he wanted to see it develop. And he wanted to see it break out of the cocoon. So what he did is he he took the cocoon home and he... And he hung it there on his uh, wall, and he wanted to see the, the moth uh, expose itself and, and see what it had become. Well, it was just a few days later that the man noticed a small slit had taken place there in the cocoon, and he could see through the slit a moth fighting and struggling to get out. Well, this went on for several, several minutes, and the man became concerned for the moth, and he didn't know if something had gone wrong or something wasn't right with the moth. So what he did is he decided to take matters into his own hands, and he took scissors, and he just created a a little larger incision in the cocoon so that way the moth could more readily work its way out. Well, the man did that, and the moth came out of the cocoon, but what happened is the moth was much larger than a normal moth. The body size was, and the wings were much smaller. Well, the man thought to himself, I'm sure this is just a natural maturation of a moth, and this is how it has to happen, and so I'll come back in maybe an hour or two, and the moth will be up flying around, and I'll get to see this thing happen. But what the man did not understand is when he made that incision, he made the struggle less. And God created the struggle for that moth to build his strength to be able to fly. How many times do we request God to make the incision just a little bit bigger so we can escape our trouble 
all the while not realizing the end result is God wants you to fly. And God wants great things for you, but we cry in the middle of our trial, we cry in the middle of our struggle, we say, God, I'm down here suffering, I, I just don't know what to do, I, I just I feel like everything is lost, and I, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know what God says? Struggle, because it strengthens you, and it helps you learn how to lean on me. Finally, and we're actually very close to being done with the sermon tonight, suffering loss helps us to live like the Savior. It helps us to learn about Him. It helps us to lean on Him. But it helps us to live like Him. You want to know what the entire, entire reason Jesus Christ came to this earth was? He did a lot of amazing things while He was on this earth. He was a tremendous teacher. And I believe Christian and non-Christians alike could glean from the wisdom that Jesus had to offer in many matters on, on just character and, and, and being a man who, who works and is as faithful and, and, and someone who tells the truth and has integrity. I believe all those things are good principles for every person, lost and unsaved, uh, saved and unsaved the same. I believe those are good things, but Jesus did not come to teach. Jesus did not come even to preach. Well, he did a lot of preaching while he was on this earth. He preached to his disciples. He preached to the Pharisees, and sometimes the messages were pretty rough. Had a lot of sharp edges to them, if you will. He called them a generation of vipers. He even got to name-calling. Last time we called you a name was, what, maybe a week or two ago? I mean, you're doing good. Uh, But Jesus didn't come to preach. Jesus didn't come to teach us how to pray. Jesus didn't come to teach us how to give. Jesus didn't come to teach us how to live right, walk right, talk right. None of those things. You know what Jesus came to do? Die. He came to suffer and to die. The Bible says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. It was his overwhelming priority. All the rest of the stuff were just benefits. All of it was just uh, helpful information. Jesus was ushering in a new era, uh, so he had a lot of things to teach. But the entire purpose of Jesus' earthly ministry was not to teach or preach or pray. It was to die for the lost and dying world. What is our priority as a church? I'm concerned that sometimes we get so focused in on things that really do not matter. We get focused in on how to clean up sinners. We get focused in on how to perform good songs or how to uh, put together good Easter programs or Christmas cantatas. And we, we get concerned about how this world responds to our church's message and We get concerned about whether the buses are going to run. And we get concerned about all this other stuff, whether or not there's going to be enough enrolled in the the Christian school. We get concerned about whether or not we're going to get the promotion. We get concerned about our kids and whether or not they're ever going to play college sports. And for most of us, we could probably just say, no, they're not. 
And we get concerned about so many things that at the end of the day are just peripheral things. They're just secondary at the very best. When we get to walk in the steps of Jesus, you know what our focus will become? Sinners. We'll begin to witness. We'll begin to labor in prayer. When's the last time a a sinner broke your heart? A while back, I had the opportunity to counsel a young woman. Her mother was sitting there and her sons were sitting there and the mother's sons were sitting there and I talked to this girl and, and I was sharing with her the gospel and I asked, do you believe in God? And she said, I believe that there are many gods. And I said, so uh, you believe that kind of like Greek mythology, that there's a lot of gods like a sun god and a moon god and a water god, you believe all that? She said, kind of. I began to just ask her about what she believed, and it became abundantly clear that she really didn't know what she believed. And she kind of had this jumbled potluck of faith, if you will, where so many different things were thrown together, she really had no way to understand what she even thought. I began to ask her about her salvation. I began to ask her whether or not she believed that Jesus Christ died for her, I, believe, I asked if she believed that the Word of God was truly God's Word. I was showing her verses for all of these things. And she became increasingly more aggravated with everything that I had to say. She could not defend her faith, but I was able to defend mine. I was able to show her an authoritative guide on what I believed, where all of hers was just superstition and thought. And I asked her, Do you want to trust Christ today? She literally got up from the chair she was standing in and looked at her mother and said, this is the entire reason you brought me to church and stormed out of my office. She was forced to visit our church a couple weeks later. I went up to shake her hand. said, how are you? And she wouldn't shake my hand absolute hatred for everything I had to say. At this point, it's now become hatred for me. And I'll be very honest, I'm broken for her. I want to seek God. Do the unthinkable. I want to see God this year Save the people we think are the unsavable. I want to see God take the homosexual who is no worse than you. I want to see God take a homosexual and redeem them just like he redeemed me. I want to see God take an adulterer and redeem them just like he redeemed me. I want to see God take the worst and the lowest, which is right there on the rung that I was, and redeem them by the blood of the Lamb, and redeem them at the cross of Calvary. The ground is level at the cross. There is no highs and there is no lows there. If someone will just have enough faith to say, I believe that Jesus died and I will trust him that when I take his message to people they will trust him 
if we'll just believe that God can do great things. When's the last time you were broken for sinners? The other day when we had that bus rally, we had all those kids in there unwrapping those presents. We had about 40 or 50 adults in this room listening to me preach the gospel to them. Another 20 or 30 listening to Brother Franco preach the gospel in Spanish. All the children listening to a gospel presentation. And you were a part of that. Whether you gave a gift or whether you're here serving, if all you did was lead people around the building, you were a part of that. Let me ask you, why does that only happen once a year? Why do we have to promote it? Why do we have to plan it out and say, well, this is what we're going to do. If you'll hop on board with us, we'll see great things happen. Every week we come to church, we ought to realize God is about to do something great. And if people begin to pray, and if people begin to sacrifice And if people would begin to work and just say, God, I realize that I'm not much, but I I hope that you can use the little that I am. If we'll just begin to believe that God does great things through small things, who knows what we'll see this next year. Hey, walking in the steps of Jesus is not going to be easy. It's a day-to-day walk that requires a lot of suffering. But it's a walk that gets to walk people down this aisle and show them at this altar how they can be saved. It's a walk that gets to develop friendships and relationships based not on the the ever-changing current of emotion, but based on the foundation that you had a part in their eternal destination. Hey, if you want a part of that, let's walk in the steps. Let's stop focusing on all that really doesn't matter and just begin to focus on the one thing that does. Walking in the steps of Jesus and leading others down the same path.